Romans. This is part three. And I've been trying to, I don't want to get your hopes up because we will not take the whole book of Romans in big bites like this. Um, it will slow down a little bit in the, in the more doctrinal uh, passages that we'll be coming to later in the book. But I want to just look at two verses tonight. Stating the theme of Romans, the reception and experience of the gospel. Do you have that uh, 16 and 17 in your notes? Let's read it aloud and don't mumble it. Let's read it aloud and together. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. First point, you have this wonderful affirmation, and I'm going to try and make up for lost time, not lost time, but used time, if you know what I mean. I am not ashamed of the gospel. There's a lot assumed in that little statement. Um, when Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, he's saying that he anticipates a certain reaction to a commitment to and a proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He expects a certain reaction on the part of others as he commits himself to the gospel of Jesus Christ because there's a world full of other religions with other systems of belief, some contrary and directly opposed to the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. So different is the gospel from the culture in which it resides that Paul expects that it will be ridiculed and he expects that he will be persecuted. So the first thing he says about the gospel relates to, I'm not ashamed of it. Think about that just for a minute. What Paul is talking about here, he never imagined, he never imagined a world in which Christians would be mocked for their hypocrisy in not living up to the gospel. That happens, but that's not what's on Paul's mind. What's on Paul's mind is the way a culture will react to people who do profess and live up to the gospel. That there will be pushback. People will criticize and mock them for their countercultural lifestyle. And this, this is so pervasive in Paul's mind that even when he talks to young pastors, he's mentoring young pastors everywhere he goes, and he just feels he has to talk to them about this. It's in your notes, I think. 2 Timothy 1, 8 and 16. Paul to Timothy. Timothy's a young pastor in a pretty major metropolitan center with a lot on his plate. And Paul writes and says, don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. Why would he have to tell him that? nor for me his prisoner. You know what people would say. This powerful gospel of yours. It's great. Paul's in prison, doing wonders for him, isn't it? You could hear Timothy getting this kind of ridicule. Share in my suffering for the gospel by the power of God. 16. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. So, you see the bracket in that text. First line, don't be ashamed. Last line, 
not ashamed. So, so first, we shouldn't be ashamed of the gospel. We should, we should constantly expect that carnal minds will not only reject it, but they will ridicule people who accept it. Those are two different things. You're here and you're the enviable under 35 crowd. Have you got it firmly entrenched in your mind that this book, this book prophesies that your faith is going to be mocked and ridiculed? Like, did you understand that when you bought in? That's, that's that first point. And second, we must accept a certain persecution for our faith, not as something belittling or demeaning, not a sense that it's a failure, but as proof of faithfulness, of a race well run. I've often thought, I've often thought about Jesus' words. He warned his followers, his disciples. He says in Mark 8, 38, whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him, and the him is, the person who is ashamed of the words of Jesus, what Jesus said about marriage, what Jesus said about adultery, what Jesus said about being the only way of salvation, if a person gets, if a person is edgy and ashamed, not disbelieving it, but ashamed, ashamed to state it, ashamed to stand up, to plant the flag and be marked by it, Jesus says, well then, uh, the Son of Man also, I'm just reading now, these, these are, see these words coming out of Jesus' own lips. They're tumbling out of Jesus' mouth. Of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed. When he comes in the glory of his Father, not when it's ridiculed anymore. There won't be any countercultural. There's only going to be one culture when he comes. The glory of his Father with his holy angels. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes. What are we going to do with those words? Let's do this. Okay, let's do this. Everybody take your Bible, go like this. And then go like this and see if they disappear. I mean, there, there they are. Do you ever give thought to them? Do you ever let those words get under your skin? I can remember a time when we were pretty little. My mom always had a hard time with her neck and her back. Those of you that can remember long, 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 long time ago, my mom always had a a thing she wore around her neck and her back was always sore. And uh, when we were still in Saskatoon, it was at its peak in terms of pain and discomfort. We had a parsonage, a house, and it had snowed quite a bit. Snowed quite a bit and... and, um, we just got fooling around, the four boys, 
and, and dad had asked us to shovel out the driveway, and mom had reminded us, and, and we just got doing other stuff. And dad came home, and, and there was mom with a shovel out in the driveway, pushing snow around, struggling with it. And I will never forget my dad talking to the four of us. I was the youngest, so I felt the least responsible in some <laughs> ways. But I'll never forget my dad talking to the four of us all together. And he, and he said, didn't happen very often, he said, I'm ashamed of you guys. And I would have just as soon you shot me. Wasn't some brutal beating. There were those too. This wasn't. I'm, I'm, I'm ashamed of you guys. And we felt it. Now, I don't know what you do with these words. How do you picture it? Like, I don't, I don't, I don't, the, the text doesn't officially say they're lost, they're damned. doesn't say that. But Jesus comes to these professing Christians, these believers. How do you see it? Do you, do you see him walking up and being this far from your face and saying, Don, I'm ashamed. I gave my life for you. Was it that hard for you to pay the price of certain friendships where people didn't honor me? Was it that hard for you not to, you know, not to date someone who wasn't a Christian because of the price? Was it, was it that hard to be in a classroom where you had a teacher or a professor who marked the things of Christ? Was, it, was, was that what made you hang your head and close your mouth? And, and Jesus says, I'm ashamed. And I... The two things I never want to hear from Jesus. The two things I never want to hear from Jesus. One, I've said it before. I never want to have Jesus come to me and say, why did you, why did you sit there, sing all those songs, and call me Lord, 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 and I was talking to you about this, and you didn't do the things I told you to do. I don't ever want to hear that from Jesus. Are you with me? And I don't ever want to hear, Don, I love you, but I'm just I'm so ashamed. And maybe, maybe that's what it means when the book of Revelation says he will wipe all the tears from our eyes. What would we be weeping about at that moment? So Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I took too long on that point. Two, the effect of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation. Now Rome... Rome is, uh, at that time, the hub of the whole world. It, it marked the best of the world's achievements, ideas, literacy, education, philosophy, the arts. It represented all that was best and most advanced in man's attempts to achieve self-greatness on his own terms. And Paul would, Paul would say to those people... But the gospel's different because it has the power of God in it. 
It's not just moral reform. It's not just cultural refinement. It's not just self-improvement. God has put his power in the gospel. Religion can be man-made. The gospel isn't. So when used in reference to the gospel, salvation means deliverance from the guilt of sin. But there's more than just forgiveness. The gospel means the relationship with God is remedied and restored because, because we can't leave it. We can't leave it the way it is. John 3.36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son, do you see what he did there? Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. What's the problem? Well, the wrath of God remains on him. There's all sorts of writers who don't like talking about the wrath of God. The problem is Jesus isn't one of those writers. So in addition to the deliverance from the guilt of sin, and in addition to the healing and the restoring of that broken relationship with God, salvation also means deliverance from the power of sin. This is all tied up in in the power of God. We're jumping ahead of ourselves. We'll come to these verses, but in Romans 6, 6 and 7... We know that our old self was crucified with him. In order that the body of sin, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. Okay, we need to think about that. We're talking about the power of God. Forgiveness? restoration, the broken relationship with God, and now we're talking about the power of God as it manifests itself in deliverance from the power of sin, ongoingly, in in a lifestyle. What's that mean to be no longer enslaved to sin? Um, does Does it mean I will no longer be tempted to sin? I would say no. You, you flee temptation. You repent of sin. Those are two different responses. Will I ever sin after conversion? If yes, then in what sense am I no longer a slave to sin? Again, if, because we're talking about the power of God, you have to jump ahead a little bit in the book, but look at Romans 6. 11 to 13. What does it mean to be no longer enslaved to sin? How does the power of God break the enslaving power of sin? 6.11. So you also, Don, you also must consider yourselves, consider yourselves dead to sin, alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now there's going to be some important words coming up here. If I were underlining Let not sin, therefore, and I'd circle this word, reign. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Do not, and I'd circle, present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but, and I'd underline, present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. So the the, the key verbs... Consider, reign, present. 
So they, they describe the process of trust, faith, as it works itself out in our skin. Point number three. The condition of receiving the gospel. He says in verse 17, To everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Paul um, wants to make clear that whoever reads this letter needs the gospel, can experience the gospel, And Christ died to make that gospel available. So both the Jew and the Greek underscores that universality. Everyone. Everyone. The religiously devout, the atheist, the scorned pagan, they all need the gospel equally. Um, Man's religious efforts, moral efforts, they don't make the gospel redundant. It's still necessary. All can receive the gospel by faith. It's to everyone, he says, to everyone who believes. So nobody, not the Jew with the the law, which they received from God, nor the Greek, the Gentile, with any of the advancements of education and refinement, neither one brings anything to the table when it comes to the gospel. There's, There's nothing to offer. We're not bartering. Nobody's more worthy. Nobody is less worthy. But what does it mean to believe the gospel? To everyone who believes, the Jew first and the Greek. I'm assuming people, probably everybody, just about everybody in this room would call himself or herself a believer. That's kind of what we call Christians, believers. It doesn't have a lot of rootage in the New Testament, but it's not a bad term, believers. I mean, I believe a lot of things. So do you. The earth will orbit the sun this year. I believe that. I believe, I believe uh, winter and snow are coming. I believe that. Is this the kind of belief Paul's talking about? What, what parts of my being are involved in believing? Is it just rooted in my understanding? Does it just come from my will? Well, there's, there has to be a, some kind of intellectual comprehension of the truth. We have to know something is true, but that isn't enough. James, James 2.19, You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So, so, demons aren't lost for lack of doctrinal understanding. Probably the closest equivalent to believe is trust. Joyful trust. To, to believe the gospel is to put an end to self-reliance. It's to acknowledge the personally paralyzing effects of inner sin and wickedness. It's humility. 
and daily trust for both cleansing and empowering, the effects of Christ's life, death, resurrection, the work of his spirit in me. So, so belief isn't just, isn't just some kind of knowledge of the truth. You have to have at least that. But belief is more than that. It's, belief is probably best defined, if you wanted to pick one word, trust or maybe even allegiance. Which goes back to the way he says, I'm not ashamed. I am allied, lined up, committed to Christ and what he has done on, on my behalf. Four, the nature of the gospel. It says in verse 17, the righteousness of God is revealed. When, when Paul uses that word righteousness, the righteousness of God is revealed. He's talking about the gospel. In it, the righteousness of God is revealed. He's not just talking about the fact that God is a righteous God. I mean, that's true. Wouldn't you have said the love of God is revealed in the gospel? That's the first thing I would have said. Interesting, eh? The righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. So, so the righteousness of God is revealed in, in this sense. The kind of righteousness God requires in those who would make an approach to him, that's the kind of righteousness God requires. And that does not sound like good news. If the gospel is good news, that's the worst news I've ever heard. The kind of righteousness God requires if I'm going to make an approach. Because, because I don't have it. And you don't have it. Here's why Paul's not ashamed of the gospel. In the gospel, if you've never heard it said this way, you, you need to know this much about the gospel for sure. God supplies the righteousness that God requires. I'm not trying to be hokey. Say that with me. God supplies the righteousness God requires. One more time. God supplies the righteousness God requires. Like, that's the best news ever. There isn't better news. The cross reveals the righteousness of God in that sin is not ignored. Wrath of God is revealed against wickedness and sin and unrighteousness. And the love of God is revealed in that the righteousness of Christ gets the old King James and theologians would say, imputed, credited, supplied to my heart. If you want a beautiful Old Testament account, Genesis 22, 6-8, Abraham and Isaac going up the mountain. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering, laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife, and so they went up together. Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father, and he said, Here am I, my son. Here am I, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire, the wood, but where's the lamb? Where's the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, underline, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. Substitute. Substitute.
What does Paul mean when he says the righteousness is revealed, verse 17, from faith for faith, from faith for faith? What does that mean? What do the words from and for indicate? They will carry us on into the next point. Paul portrays the power of the gospel not only in terms of one-time conversion, justification we call it, salvation, new birth, the initial experience of being saved, but the power of the gospel covers the past and the present tense. We are justified by placing resolute trust in the person and work of Christ, and, and then we move on in present godly living, in that same abiding confidence and trust, Jesus remains the center of it all. Faith grows. There's a momentum to it. Five. The marks of a life shaped by the gospel. The righteous shall live by faith. It's a modified quote from the prophet Habakkuk. Four. The righteous shall live by his faith. Here's what I would define as some of the basic marks of faith in Christ. Just real simple, real quick. You have to go back now, before the verses that we're studying, 16 and 17. You go back and you'll see some of the evidences of a life of faith. First, a zeal for spreading the gospel. You can see it in verses 9 and 10 and then 13 to 15 where Paul talks about, especially in verse 14, he's received grace and that obligates him. A passion for the lost. Um, he's not ashamed of the gospel in the sense that he's not ashamed of proclaiming the gospel. Telling people they need the gospel. Giving witness to the gospel. I, I don't know. I don't know how a person can say I've experienced God's grace his saving faith, but it's just not in me. I'm not the kind of person that shares. You're a debtor, Paul says. You're a debtor. B, another mark of a life of faith, deep joy and fellowship with other disciples. You see it in 11 and 12. For I, I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine, mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not understand, and the Lord doesn't understand, Christian people who don't want to fellowship together with other Christians. It's your lifeblood. See, another mark of faith, intercessory prayer life. 9 and 10, for God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that I am, without ceasing, I make mention of you, always in my prayers. Without ceasing, I mention you, always in my prayers. A manifestation of the faith of the gospel. You're going to see it in a little bit. We join together. We pray for each other. What is the point? What is the point of saying we will reach out and touch the world with the love and grace of Jesus, but please don't ask me to touch brothers and sisters in Christ with the love of grace in, of Jesus. Where, where is that learned? Well, it's learned in the body of Christ. 4D. Another sign of a life of faith, a life marked by servanthood and service to Jesus. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. Now, he's called to be an apostle. You're not. 
but you're still set apart for the gospel of God. This isn't in your notes. Do you ever do you ever picture yourself I'm not trying to be morbid I'm going somewhere with this. Do you ever picture yourself be it soon or in the far distant future do you ever picture yourself on your deathbed? Anybody ever do that? Yeah I do too. I do too. I mean, I mean, do you ever picture yourself where you, you know you're going to die now? There's nothing iffy about it anymore. You're, you're, now, it doesn't always happen that way. You get hit by a bus. You, get, you don't always get... But do you ever imagine that you, you know you're going to die, but you still have the capacity for mental processing and thought? And, and what kind of thoughts, if you, you know you're right about to leave this world... What do you see yourself thinking about? And I'll tell you what I see myself thinking about. Won't be any doubt at all about Jesus Christ being my Savior and Lord and my life in his hands. I mean, maybe death does something. Maybe there's fear. You know, it's an unknown. But I don't, I don't imagine that that's, that's particularly the issue. But at the very end of my life, if I'm still able to be alert, mentally processing, at the very end, I, I know I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say to myself, I wish I hadn't wasted so much time. And I wish I had just a year. I would invest my life so much differently for Christ. Can't you imagine yourself thinking that? You know you're leaving. I wish I hadn't wasted a minute of making all this count for Christ. And of course, wisdom is there's a pretty good chance that I am going to die. And so the wisdom is to now say, let alone the rest of my life, I can't get, I can't get today back or tomorrow back. Help me not to waste a minute serving you in any conceivable way possible. Let's pray.